Today, more and more people communicate with one another by text, emails, posts, tweets, text messages. Actually, using your phone to talk to someone is becoming a rarity. I have family members I call, and they won't answer their phone. But if I shoot them a text, they'll respond to me instantly. People prefer to text. We live in a world of text-based communications. And one byproduct of it is something that we call an emoticon. An emoticon is a symbol that you add to a text that conveys the sender's emotions. The word emote is a conveyance of emotion. The word icon is computer jargon for a prompt that helps you navigate and move around within a software program. So an emoticon adds emotion to computer text. Originally, emoticons were made with punctuation marks. A semicolon, a dash, and half a parenthesis makes an online smiley face, a symbol for fun and lightheartedness. Of course, turn the parentheses around and the smiley becomes a frown, a symbol for sadness. In recent years, emoticons have become more elaborate. This combination of punctuation marks has been replaced with graphical and pictorial emoticons. And if you do a lot of text-based correspondence, you know that these emoticons are not just cutesy anymore. They become important. With a text, you don't have space or time to always articulate your feelings. And so a message can come across as incomplete at best, rude at worst. Mere text, just words and letters, don't always say what we want said. And so an emoticon gives us the ability to add a tone, to convey a feeling behind our words. I'm not a touchy-feely guy ordinarily. I don't like to excessively emote. But I have found myself using these emoticons more and more. If I text someone something tongue-in-cheek or make a laughable comment, the reader can't hear me chuckle. They can't see my smile through the text. And thus an emoticon keeps me from being misunderstood, even from offending. This morning, our church and me as your pastor celebrate 35 years of ministry. Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain started on the last Sunday in September 1980. Kathy, myself, five single adults, and an 18-month-old met for the first time in our rented duplex, just a few miles from where we're sitting today. The first year, our total offerings were $11,000. That was for the whole year, $11,000. I worked a warehouse job as we launched the church. Today, I no longer work in the warehouse. The Lord has provided. Where God guides, He really does provide. We have never passed an offering plate or pressured folks to give or conducted a pledge campaign Yet in 2011, we wrote the last check to Brand Bank on our mortgage. Our church is now debt-free. My son Max says, Dad, Dave Ramsey would be proud. Well, I appreciate Dave Ramsey, but it's God that I want to see glorified. 
He has been faithful. And I could speak in a lot of ways about this wonderful journey. I could take you through the places. We met in our home for the first six months before we moved to a storefront in Stone Mountain. We rented an upper room that seated 120 people. Since the church in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, consisted of 120 people, and they met in an upper room, we thought we were being biblical. And the same Holy Spirit filled us. A year later, we moved into a dilapidated warehouse that we eventually renovated, then we purchased, then we sold it back to its original owner. That's when we purchased this property and built the building that we're meeting in today. Over the 20 years since, since we've been here, we've added more land, two more parking lots, 200 seats to our sanctuary, three classrooms, another upper room to meet in, a baptismal pool, a volleyball court, most recently a pavilion, and we found time to plant another church in Winder, Calvary 316. I could also talk about our church's impact on people. How much fun would it be if we had the time to list the literally thousands of folks who have been saved over the last 35 years here at Calvary Chapel? And they found a home here, a family here. This has become home to many people. Just one example would be Roy Alby. Roy was dear to me. He was a truck driver for 40 years, never came to church. But when he parked his truck, his sons brought him to Calvary Chapel. One Christmas Eve, he came up to me and he asked me, he said, Pastor Sandy, how does somebody get saved around here? We prayed right then and there, and his life was truly transformed. Roy is in heaven today as a result. We could tally up a long list of people whose lives have been changed, whose Christian faith has been rooted and grounded, whose wounds have been healed, whom God has raised up to serve, some even sent out. And no doubt many of you would be on that list. Or we could discuss Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain's mission beyond our four walls. The thousands of folks who we've encouraged through the radio and the internet. The effect that our school has had on hundreds of kids in our community. Numerous outreaches at home and mission trips abroad. And that's not to mention the regional leadership that's been thrust upon us because of our place in the Calvary Chapel family of churches. We now provide counsel and encouragement and conferences for churches all throughout the South. There are many ways that I could talk to you about Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain's first 35 years of ministry. But if I only talked about finances and buildings and tallies and endeavors, I wouldn't be communicating with you what's truly on my heart. Some of you have been with us for a while. You know, you've had a taste. You've experienced some of the emotions that have come with this journey. People who just pick up a CD of this or who log on and listen to it might misunderstand. We could come across shallow or even proud. Facts alone are insufficient storytellers. So how do you capture 35 years in 35 minutes? This is where I need some emoticons. <laughs> For compared to 35 years, one morning is probably 140 characters. I'm sending out a tweet today. Today, I want to talk to you about the emotions behind the ministry. 
You know, there are plenty. Being a pastor is an emotional roller coaster. You're up. You're down. A person gets saved. A person falls away. A guy grows. Another goes. You read a letter of thanks followed by a critical email. You figure at least you're making a difference. And that's just one day. Trust me, the emotions behind our service, behind any Christian service, are a mixed bag. And thus, I've titled today's message, Emoticons of Ministry. And the first emoticon that I want to attach to the ministry is the most recognizable. That bright, smiley face. Joy. I want to start with the joys of ministry. For a pastor takes more than his share of happiness. A pastor sits at the epicenter of what God is doing in the lives of his people. He sees firsthand God's grace and greatness and glory. Jesus told his disciples in Luke 15 verse 10, There is joy in the presence of the angels of God when one sinner repents. A pastor gets to rejoice with the angels. To see a person repent of their sin, then ask God for his pardon, and right there in front of your very eyes you see the burden roll away, a smile sprout on his face. That's a wonderful thing. I think the prettiest smiles appear on faces that haven't done much smiling for a while. Their facial lines suddenly get rearranged. Turn that person's frown into a smile and it lights up the room. It causes great joy in the people around them. In the 35 years that I've been a pastor, I have never lost my excitement and my thrill over the new birth. Actually, my confidence in the gospel has grown, not lessened. I believe the cross of Christ is the most powerful change agent on the planet. It replaces hearts of stone with tender, loving hearts. That is a modern-day miracle. I'll never forget Lingy. His wife and daughter got saved at our church and were scheduled to be baptized. She warned me in advance to beware of her husband. He didn't like churches and pastors, but he would be at their baptism. He was probably suspicious to what was happening to his family. And so this tough guy came that morning to check us out. Afterwards, we moved over to the apartment pool where we were doing the baptism. I was in the water while the people were all standing around the outside of the pool. And I was just about to baptize his daughter when all of a sudden I heard a splash. It was Lingy. The love of Jesus and the power of the gospel had gripped this man. He jumped into his pool still wearing the street clothes that he had brought with him. He was wearing his street clothes. I don't think he took off his shoes. I'll never forget meeting him halfway across the pool. Tears were rolling down his cheeks as he asked me if he could get baptized with the rest of his family. He prayed right there in the water to receive Jesus into his life, and he was baptized. His life changed then and there. That's pretty cool. Changed lives never gets old. This is one of the great joys of being a pastor. Of all Jesus' disciples, the Apostle John lived the longest. He became a pastor of pastors. John the Aged, he was called. In one of his last letters, he wrote in 3 John, verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. 
And this brings me great joy as well. To know that the people who are coming to our church have embraced God's truth. That they're growing and walking in God's ways. Psalm 119 verse 9 is one of my favorite verses. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. There are no shortcuts to spiritual growth. It takes a whole Bible to make a whole Christian. This is why we planted a church that teaches the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, cover to cover. We need to know God's whole counsel, not just bits and pieces. Romans 10 verse 17 tells us, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It brings me great joy to see folks fall in love with their Bible. It's what feeds our faith. It's also a joy to get a vision from God. Some new idea, a new emphasis perhaps, new marching orders. And then see that vision come to fruition. To watch others jump on board and for God to fund it. And for the Holy Spirit to bless it. And then one day it come to pass. What a joy it is to be a part of a work of God. There was a time when this building only existed on a paper napkin. When we agreed to purchase the property, we were short 70 grand. Oh, but we had verses. We had verses. We had promises from God. God had personalized some passages to our situation. He told me that this building would be a place of peace. I'll never forget coming up one night during the construction. I came to check on the work. And I found a brother sitting out back. He said that he was there because he needed a place to seek the Lord. And this was just such a peaceful place. It was one of many confirmations. What a joy it is to take a step of faith. To watch God provide. And to even see God's people climb on board. I've always said the unexpected joy of the ministry are the relationships that I've built with the families of our church. This is the blessing I didn't think about when I signed up to be a pastor in the beginning. For some of you, I've been around a while. I've baptized you. I may have prayed with you to receive Christ. I officiated your marriage. I dedicated your child. Then I baptized your child. Some of you, I've even officiated your child's wedding. I'm getting old. For many of you, we've wept together over a miscarriage. We've mourned the loss of a loved one. And I am honored to have been there at the crossroads of your life. I feel a connection, like I'm part of your family. I hope you feel the same about me. But all this brings me great joy. But joy is not the only emotion that a pastor feels. A second emoticon that I would attach to ministry is that upside-down smile, that frowny face, for sorrow is also part of being a pastor. You don't know how often I have grieved over the soul of a brother or sister whose faith became shipwrecked. A few months earlier, they were among us. We laughed together. We labored for the Lord together only to watch temptation and sin and perhaps pride get the upper hand. I have lost friends in the faith. I have seen people abandon their spouse and damage their kids. And it brings to a pastor's heart great sorrow. Certainly no one's perfect. Hey, I sin 
And I fall short of the glory of God more times than I'd like. But a Christian admits his failures and is quick to repent. You don't quit on God. You don't bail on His church. Faith is always pressing forward. The pastor grieves when he sees a Demas walk away from his faith because he loved this present world. He mourns when he sees two Christians like the ladies in Philippi quibbling over insignificant issues. Two people that allow personal preferences to rob the church of its unity. What grieves me most, I think, is the pettiness that sometimes exists among Christians. The guy who's never happy, who can't see beyond the end of his nose. The gal who's always complaining. It's just sad to see people minor on the major stuff and major on the minor stuff. A pastor sees the seeds that people sow. And he knows that God is not mocked. He knows we reap what we sow. A pastor knows that sin carries consequences. I once prayed with a man to receive Christ on his deathbed. And he did. He was gloriously saved. But that didn't stop him from dying from a liver poisoned by alcohol. The wages of sin is death in more ways than one. It's heartbreaking to watch people reject God's truth and God's wisdom and make destructive choices. You know, we live in a fallen world, and with it comes inexplicable sorrow. As the book of Job teaches us, not all heartbreak is traceable to poor choices. Sometimes life just throws you a curve. Why does a faithful Christian end up with cancer? Why does a hard-working husband get laid off? And can no longer feed his family. How often is a pastor asked the big question, why? I believe it does pay to be good and godly. But I've learned that payday doesn't always come in this life. Life isn't always fair. Situations aren't always just. And while we grieve over these injustices, God uses them. He redeems them to stretch our faith. And to cause us to lean on Him. Realize it's in the muck and mire of life that a person's faith matures. It's sorrow that waters the seeds of faith. Oh, we love the joyful times. But it's in the grief that we grow. As I've said many times, it takes the manure for us to mature. Ultimately, life is a test. It's only a test. I love the poem. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Ne'er a word, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. Sorrow is also felt by a pastor. There's a third emoticon that I would place after the word ministry. How about frustration? You know, we forget that after Adam sinned, God cursed his work. That he would never get out of his work all that he had put into it. That he came from the dust, and then he would work that same dust until he became dust. Dust to dust. And even when that work goes under the banner of ministry, it doesn't escape this curse. Light bulbs blow out at the church the same way They do at home. Concrete cracks 
and toilets clog and windows smudge, even when they're God's windows and toilets and concrete. It happens even at church. You'd think if we were serving the Lord that God would make it a little easier for us. And don't misunderstand, He blesses His work, but He doesn't remove the normal frustrations. He wants us to learn to live above them. In the parable of the sower, Jesus spoke of a farmer who goes out and sows seed. Some of it falls by the roadside and the birds eat it up. It takes no root. Some of it lands on stony ground. It dies out under the hot scorching sun. And then some of it falls into the weeds. It gets choked out by the thorns. Only one quarter of the seed that the sower sows nestles into fertile ground and takes root and grows and bears fruit. The farmer ends up with a 25% success rate. You know, a kicker who only makes 25% of his field goals or a baseball player who only gets a hit a quarter of the time will soon be looking for new work. And yet, according to Jesus, a person in Christian ministry may only be successful a quarter of the time, 25%. And that makes for a frustrated pastor at times. Why don't more people get it? You know, another frustration in ministry is the lack of tangible measurements by which you can gauge spiritual success. In business, it's all about widgets you sell and the dollars you bank, but not so in ministry. Just attracting a crowd doesn't equal success. Jesus told us to make disciples, and making disciples is a multifaceted process. How do you measure a person's spiritual maturity? It's hard. What about a pastor who has to till up rocky soil to plant the seed? It takes longer. It's more difficult than sowing in fertile soil. But is that man any less a success? Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 17, The kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, See here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. God's kingdom in the world today is not tangible but invisible it's not physical but it's spiritual it's not brick and mortar rather it's grace and truth in today's world God's kingdom reigns over human hearts rather than over human governments and institutions you know I think a lot about what I'll leave behind when my time at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain is over who'll be the next pastor what will happen to this church As if the church were an institution, but it's not. The church consists of people. God's work in today's world is not defined by buildings, but by building up of people. Romans 14 verse 17 tells us, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As far as I have spread God's righteousness and peace and joy through my ministry, then that is my legacy. The title deeds we hold, the books that we write, the ministries that we launch are just byproducts. We can never gauge spiritual success by physical criteria. What matters are the lives we touch while we're here. God's Spirit is responsible for carrying on God's work after you and I have moved on. Well, another frustrating aspect of ministry is that the job is never over. 
You know, a builder finally gets his certificate of occupancy. Maybe hard, but he gets it. A salesman closes the deal. A banker finances the loan. But a pastor's job isn't done until the last sinner gets saved, until the whole world comes to know Jesus. That means there's always more to do. In ministry, we face unlimited needs with limited resources. Infinite needs with finite resources. God gives us a thimble and tells us to fill the ocean. It's good. keeps us trusting. keeps us leaning on Him. And this is why everyone in ministry should know their calling. What specific task has Jesus called me to now? In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus commended the faithful servant, not for doing lots of things, He said to him, because you were faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. A person or pastor who tries to do it all will burn himself out. You'll end up dog tired, exhausted. Now the key to overcoming ministry frustration is to realize the few things that God expects from you at any one time. Remember, not even Jesus did it all. In John 17, he prayed to his father, I have finished the work that you have given me to do. Wait a minute, there's still folks who were sick? There were still people lost who needed to be saved? There were still wounds that needed to be mended? But on the cross, Jesus finished his part in God's plan. Now we're called on to be his body and to carry on his work. Well, there's another emoticon that I want to attach to Christian ministry. And that's rejection. For if your goal is to be liked on earth by people, then get a cotton candy machine. (laughs) Or go to clown school. It's a good idea. Or, Or be the guy who mans the Ferris wheel. Oh, but don't become a pastor. You'll end up gravely disappointed. The world crucified Jesus. Now don't expect this same wicked world to roll out the red carpet for his followers. Mankind wants to go his own way and do his own thing. This is the nature of sin. And the pastor is called on by God to confront the rebellion. A pastor calls on people to repent. And that means to turn, to go a different way. This puts a pastor between sinners and sin. That's about as safe as eating your lunch in the middle of 285 on a weekday afternoon. Oftentimes, people take out their hostilities toward God on His representative. It's easier to reject and get angry at the pastor than it is to dislike God. I mean, folks may not even realize that that's what they're doing, but, but you know, well, there's something about that guy I just never liked. Who does he think he is? It's been said, a pastor needs a soft heart but a thick skin. The the heart of a child and the hide of a rhinoceros. If you're in Christian ministry, you can't take everything personal. Never forget that our real enemy is spiritual. Ephesians 6 verse 12 reminds us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, 
against the rulers of the darkness of this age. It is a spiritual battle. We fight an unseen foe. Over the years, people have asked me, Pastor Sandy, what's the greatest trial that you've experienced in ministry? And I always answer that question without the slightest hesitation. I tell them, the wounds that I have received from people who I thought were my friends. There are people with whom I felt really close. We laughed. We cried together. Yet something happened. A misunderstanding. A perceived slight. A jealousy, perhaps. I was betrayed. If I took my shirt off and showed you my back, you'd see some nasty scars. I got some stab wounds back there. I think my wife has more than I. Here's a quote. Against a foe I can defend, but heaven help me against a disloyal friend. This is why every Christian needs to learn how to handle rejection. You don't get bitter. You don't get angry. You don't try to get even. You just love. You just love your enemy, your attacker, the way Jesus loves you. Here's where we take our cues from Jesus. Here's where we truly follow Jesus. We remind ourselves that we're his follower. We return good for evil. We remember that on the cross he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. We return good for evil and then we trust Jesus with what happens next. You love and you let God deal out any vengeance due. I'm just saying, if there's anything that I've learned over the last 35 years, it's that the healing is in the loving. If you close off, and if you become a bitter person, the only person you harm is yourself. Always remember, bitterness is a poison that does more damage on where it's stored than on where it's poured. The only person you harm is yourself. But if you remain a channel for God's love, even toward those who don't deserve it, you'll find greater grace. John 13 prefaces the cross and the rejection of Jesus by His very own disciples. Verse 1 reads, He loved them to the end. Jesus had every reason to wash His hands of these men, but He did it. He refused to give up on love. This is what I've learned about ministry. Don't give up on love. You know, Yogi Berra died this last week. I don't know if you noticed that. But I love one of Yogi's most favorite sayings. It ain't over till it's over. And this is how I feel about people. As long as a person has breath to breathe, God can turn that person around. There's hope. I don't give up on people and I don't give up on love. Realize Love always flows downward. It does. Love always flows downward. Parents love their kids more than the kids then turn around and love their parents. God loves us more than we'll ever love God. And this is true in ministry. Teach a Sunday school class or work with youth. And the people you want to help won't love you as much as you love them. A shepherd loves the flock more than the sheep loves the shepherd. It's just the way it is. 
Love flows downward. When I think of Christian ministry, there's another emoticon that comes to mind. How about the emoticon of uncertainty? Eh, we could call it apprehension. We could even call it fear, if we're going to be honest. You know, God's promises are many. The fulfillment of those promises are sure. It's what comes in the meantime, in the in-between time, that tests us and that proves our faith. Will we succumb to our fears? Will we buckle under to the smorgasbord of shortcuts the devil offers us? See, God wants to see how we're going to handle those times of uncertainty. After we've locked on to the promise, and while its fulfillment is still far off in the distance, will we believe? Will we continue to trust? In farming, you never reap in the same season that you sow. You plant in the springtime, you harvest in the fall. But in between, there is that long, hot, difficult, dry summertime. It's ironic, a farmer's sowing is done in a matter of days. His reaping doesn't take long either. It's the summer that drags on and on. It takes patience. It requires endurance. You weed and water all summer while the fruit ripens on the vine. And so it is with Christian ministry. We relish the harvest. Oh, what a joy it is to see people come to Christ and the church grow. Oh, it's even fun to plow the field and plant the seed in the beginning and start something from scratch. But it's in the in-between time that decides the fate of a ministry. Will you stick with it? I'm thankful that some of you have stuck with me. Years ago, my brother-in-law gave me a book for Christmas. Its title became the motto of my ministry. It's called, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And this is what I've learned of ministry. This is what it takes. Not just short bursts, but a long obedience for years. And not a heart that bounces around all over the place like a pinball, but a heart focused in the same God-led direction. This gives God an opportunity to bring His promises to fruition. A long obedience in the same direction. Usually at the pastor's conference that we host in the spring and at the youth conference we do in the summer, I'm so busy, I'm running around here taking care of different preparations. But not so much last week during the women's conference. While Kathy taught on Friday night, I I snuck around and I went up into the upper room up there and didn't get too close to the glass. I was afraid if one of those ladies turned around, I'd scare them to death. But I just kind of looked out of the window over a sanctuary packed with ladies from 30 different churches. It was wonderful. It was a scene that I had envisioned 35 years ago. But it took time. It took time for God to pull together such a wonderful team of servants. God turned a dream into a reality, but it took a long obedience in the same direction. It testifies to Hebrews 6 verse 12. It's faith and patience that inherit God's promises. Not just faith, not just patience, but the combination. Faith and patience inherit God's promises. I got three more emoticons that are produced by serving God. One emotion of ministry is camaraderie. You know, it's been said, no man is an island. 
That's especially true in the Christian life. The church is evidence that God intends for Christianity to be lived out in community with other Christians. I love the definition of the word fellowship. It literally means two fellows in the same ship. Have you seen that new Atlanta Falcons commercial? Samuel Jackson narrates it. He says, on Sundays, we're not black and white. We're not young and old. We're not rich and poor. We're not from the city or from the, have you seen this? Or from the burbs? We're all Falcons. That is until we try to get out of the parking lot. (laughs) Then we're yelling at each other and shouting obscenities and all kinds of stuff. I watch that commercial and I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Jesus died on the cross to break down our distinctions and to make us one. And we trust in a football team to unify us. Maybe sports has become our idol. I believe it's not a Falcons game that we'll find true camaraderie, but it's at church in the shadow of the cross. It's amazing to watch old soldiers who shared a foxhole together 50 years ago get reunited. Instantly, there's a bond. They haven't seen each other for over five decades, but they're able to pick up right where they left off. This is the camaraderie that I share with people with whom I've served the Lord over all these years. There is a special bond. You know, if you're tired of flying solo and doing life alone, my suggestion to you is to get involved in this church. Begin to serve the Lord with others. In some ways, ministry isn't just about what gets done, but it's that we do it together and that we learn to love each other in the process. There's another emoticon that I've learned goes with ministry, and it's surprise. When you fully follow Jesus, hold on to your hat, buddy. Your world will be anything but boring. Life becomes one big surprise after another. Twelve times in Luke's 24 chapters, we read the word marveled. They marveled at what Jesus did. They marveled at what Jesus said. The Pharisees marveled. The multitudes marveled. The disciples marveled. Everyone marveled. Like a Roman candle, Jesus lit up the dark skies of this lost world. He was a splash of light and color. If my life gets boring, it's because I'm not open to his surprises. Jesus does new things. He sings a new song. In Christ, old things pass away. Behold, all things have become new. We're told his mercies are new every morning. I've now been a pastor for 35 years, and my Lord continues to surprise me. The money comes in the nick of time. A person I didn't think of steps up to help. An answer to prayer comes out of the blue. You'd think the fact that God is so faithful would get boring. But he finds new ways of surprising us with his faithfulness. He spices it up by working serendipitously. Jesus is a God of newness. He loves putting new wine in old wineskins. You know, for years we've talked about bringing the changeless gospel to a changing world. But to do so, we have to have faith. We have to be faithful to what's changeless. And we have to be flexible to what's not. God wants us open to new methods. Committed to the truth, but open to new ways of communicating it. 
I've learned that the call of God is the call of the wild. God works in new ways, charts new paths, breaks old patterns, shatters stereotypes. We need a flexible faith. I love what the hockey great Wayne Gretzky once said. I skate to where the puck is going to be, not where it's been. This is a big part of following Jesus. Are you willing to move where His Spirit moves you? Are you willing to go when His Spirit says go? Who knows the wonderful surprises God has for Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain over the next 35 years? I know one thing for sure, it won't be boring. And I'm waiting on the surprise of all surprises when the trumpet blows and we rise to meet Jesus in the clouds. I hope it's soon. Well, the final emotion that I'll attach to ministry is that of quiet satisfaction. The feeling of a job well done. After a season of frantic activity, there's a moment when you can kick back and smell the coffee. You like those moments? They're so great. It's a wonderful feeling. You could call it peace. You could call it rest. It's assurance. It's a calm confidence. The Hebrews have a word for it. They use the word shalom. It speaks of an all-encompassing peace, a well-being of soul. In a world full of frenetic busyness and spinning your wheels, serving God emotes a sense of real fulfillment, deep down soul satisfaction. I love the 16th Psalm, and particularly the way it closes. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In God's presence, you sense a fullness, a fulfillment, a deep satisfaction. And it's not necessarily that you've created anything big or outlandish or impressive in the eyes of this world. Oh, no. It it could be a simple thing like feeding a hungry man or getting a homeless person a room for the night or discipling a teenager, or opening up your home for a Bible study. But to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant, that is what makes life worth living. Recently, I got a letter from a former staff member here at Calvary Chapel Stone Mountain. He has since gone on to other pursuits. He started a business. He got involved in high-dollar ventures. but But he wrote me this letter, and in it, He said that the time in his life where he felt that his work had the most significance were the years that he had spent working with the young people of our church. And I agree. It might not be for everyone, but there is something unparalleled about bringing God's Word to God's people. To be on one end of the text while the Holy Spirit holds the other end. And He directs it into people's hearts. Minds are enlightened. Consciences are pricked. Hearts are pried open. I'm holding on as the Holy Spirit tugs. And He works in ways that only God can. There's a peace that comes over you when God gives you a word to say and then that message gets delivered. It wasn't just another of man's opinions. It was eternal. It was God's word. God's word. It was a truth that people needed. Whether they obey it or not, at the very least, now they know. When I first told my dad that I wanted to be a pastor, he cautioned me. He tried to discourage me. 
He said, Sandy, being a pastor will be a hard life. (laughs) And I remember hearing that and walking away puzzled. How could spending your life serving God make for a hard life? (laughs) Well, he was right. Of the eight emoticons that I've attached to ministry today, four of them are negative. I mean, who wants sorrow and frustration and rejection and uncertainty? But after 35 years, I can honestly tell you that the joy and the camaraderie and the surprises and especially the deep satisfaction more than make up for any of the difficulties. Even through the negative emotions, I am now more Christ-like. And I'm looking forward to the next 35 years. When we celebrate our 70th anniversary, I'll be 92. (laughs) Maybe I'll still be around and my grandson can roll me out in a wheelchair. I can mumble a few praises to God. Who knows what emotions God will pack into 35 more years of ministry. I know for now, I am a thankful man. I am grateful to God for letting me do what I do. And I'm thankful to you for letting me do what I do and doing it with me. You guys are a great church. I just want you to know that. Together, let's all give thanks this morning to our great God.